0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. All right, 1 Samuel 1, did you catch that? And if you get our newsletter, then you'll know that Doug Campbell was supposed to be up here preaching this message. And uh, Doug was really looking forward to speaking this morning, but he came down with COVID over the weekend. And he called me yesterday to let me know, so he sent me his notes. I've never preached somebody else's sermon before, so we'll see how this goes. But he gave me more notice than I gave Steve when I called him at 9.30 on Saturday night and told him I'd come down with COVID. So, But when we were talking on the phone yesterday, Glenda assured me it's it's a man cold, so... You'll know how to pray for him and for her, but uh, he really wanted to express his, his desire to be here. He, uh, he wanted to be here and to share this message with you. So, uh, Doug, I hope I do your sermon notes justice. I likely will not carry every thought and theme and everything that was on your heart for this, but uh, yeah, we'll see where we go with this passage. I want to start by reading Psalm chapter 27. We're going to have it up on the screen. Awesome passage of Scripture. Uh, Because a wise man said last week in the sermon time, when you don't know what to do, just do what you know to do. If you don't know how to pray, pray the words of Scripture. So, thank you, Jason. Jason did an awesome job last week. Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that's the one thing that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. My father and my mother, they may have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Doug has titled this message, Take, wait, and relate. Let's pray as we dig into it. Father God, we thank you for who you are today. Would you give us eyes enlightened in your truth, God? Father, I pray the Spirit would be at work in our hearts to open our eyes and our ears and to respond in confidence to what your word has to say this morning. God, thank you for how you're at work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Doug pointed out in his intro here, have you ever been really desperate, extremely provoked and vexed for a stretch of time? I like that word. Days of trouble, days of trouble come to us all. We get irritated, we get deeply distressed. Maybe we get mad, feeling alone, maybe confused, maybe crying tears. If you're not already there, would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1? It's our main passage this morning and the story that we're going to dig through. Today we're looking at the ongoing day of trouble of a desperate woman and her prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Get some context. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jero- Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph. An Ephrathite. He had two wives. We're going to talk about that. The name of one was Hannah. The other was Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. I think we have a picture up here that Doug was hoping to show. There it is. This is Ramatham Zophim, which means double height of the watchers. The, the description of the place is there's these two big hills that face the one another, and it's, it's the valley in between, and the town, the city was built in between the two. Potentially, there were watchtowers built up on those two peaks. Maybe that's reference to the watchers. Some people believe that the watchers were the names of the hills because it's like they're watching each other. And then some commentators say, talk about the prophet watchers, which is what Doug points out. He says, uh, there was a school of watchers or prophets who were there. It's a high place. Doug says there's something about a mountain view, there's something about being up high that just draws people to God, draws people to worship, to prayer of of some kind or another when you're up high and you have that perspective. You know, when you think of mountains, you think of hills, you think of watchtowers, you think of prophets and prophecy, you think of perspective, right? A bird's eye view above the situation. Perspective. Especially in desperation, sometimes it's, it's like we're trying to catch a glimpse. Sometimes it feels claustrophobic, right? When you're desperate, you're at the end of your rope, like life's problems just seem so large and encumbering, and you can't see out and see around and see what's next. You're just kind of stuck in that desperate state. But looking down from above gives this different perspective. It's a different emotion. It's a different outlook. Is it possible that prayer can draw on the heavenly perspective above the situation? Even in the midst of the situation, somehow you get this perspective over the situation. Can prayer play a part in that? Elkanah, his name means the man who God has bought or acquired. He's a descendant of Korah, a Levitical family who lived in Ephraim. He's got these two wives. The name Hannah means favored grace or gracefulness. And then the name Penina means coral or jewel. And then as the verse says, Penina had children, multiple children, apparently. Hannah had no children. Could you see how that could kind of become their identity? That's like the issue. That's the tension. That's the, that's the, the crux of, of the plot right there. One has children... One doesn't. That's, that's the thing everybody wants to talk about. And Doug writes, that fed her prayer life. The, the desperation, the dark night, the distress that Hannah uses to fuel her prayers. What is it for you? What's that thing that fuels your prayer life? What is, what is that tension that you live with constantly that you just think, God, I, I need you to do something. I need your grace and mercy in the midst of this. It causes you to call out in prayer. What's the desire, the dream that he's placed on your heart that pushes you to your knees in prayer? It's, it's a pretty classic comment that we tend to make as Christians, and it goes something like this. I've heard this so many times. I'm not consistent in my prayer life. Anybody there? Maybe it's like, I just don't know what to pray for. Or maybe it's like, you know, I close my eyes, and I lose focus, and I just drift off, and I... Don't, don't get much out of prayer. Do you want to know a key in finding? A, a key that I'm finding in this series is desperation. When you're desperate, there ain't no trouble being consistent in your prayer life. When you're desperate, there's, there's no trouble focusing on the matter at hand. Am I right? When you're desperate, The Ukrainian church doesn't struggle at being consistent in prayer when there's bombs being dropped on their country. There's all kinds of things to pray for in the midst of pandemics and inflation and the housing crisis, people struggling and suffering. There's no trouble staying focused when you're engaged enough to know people who are really suffering. Or maybe you're the one who's suffering. I talked to a nurse this past month and she was just talking about her experience in nursing and and how it's been so overwhelming. She's responsible for like 174 different patients, long-term care, palliative care, and was talking about the swearing and the treatment and the spitting and throwing food back in their face, and you just got to smile and go into the next room and serve the next person. And she was talking about um, an individual that she cared for uh, anonymously with little detail, little personal information. This sweet gentleman that she cared for, her favorite one to go and see. When she saw his name on the chart, she thought, this is going to be a treat. He's going to be thankful. He was always polite, cordial. During an examination, she noticed some cancer. And then over a a matter of months, she watched him deteriorate. And she thought, I know what's going to happen. And it's going to be on my shift. I just know it. I, I just have this feeling. So she ended up spending a whole night as this gentleman died in her arms. And then she was late getting home from her shift, had to go to bed so she could get up and go back to the next night shift. When you're in the struggle like that, in the thick of it, I don't know how nurses do it. It's not that difficult to be consistent in prayer when when you're holding somebody's life in your hands. Desperation. What's that thing that fuels your desperate prayer? The devil's going to try and take that and say, that's the reason you shouldn't pray. If God really loved you, why would you be in this situation anyway? Why would you turn to him in prayer? See how the devil can twist that? We we need that desperation to fuel our prayer life. Look at verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas, Phinehas were priests of the Lord. Uh, men were required to come and worship. This is part of the law that Curtis was making reference to. They were required to come and worship three times. Shiloh, the city of God, where the tabernacle was. Do you, do you remember two weeks ago we talked about the law and the old covenant and how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus came? Well, they looked ahead through the eyes of faith to one day Jesus would come. He would provide that sacrifice once for all. And as they did those sacrifices in the Old Testament covenant system, it was always with the eyes of faith looking forward to the Messiah. This is just a temporary thing, but one day Jesus would come and die and pay for the sins of the world. Elkanah followed the law, other than having the two wives part, uh, which Doug mentions a little further down. We'll get into that. Uh, But this is interesting. Doug points this out in his notes. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were the priests of the Lord. And he writes this, a word about sons. Eli's sons were wicked. They would seize the best portion of the sacrifice for themselves. The best meat, the best fruit, whatever people would bring into sacrifice. They would take the best part for themselves. They would even sleep with the women who served in the temple. These are are the priest's sons. They're supposed to be serving in the temple. And then he points out Samuel's sons were dishonest. But his grandson was later a temple musician. Maybe you've heard of him. And then he says, sons, listen to the wisdom of your fathers. I find this interesting because, you know, while some people are praying to have children, like Hannah, some people are praying to survive their children. You can take that humorously or not. That's that's the truth. Imagine being God and listening to these prayers. You have somebody on one side, God, I desperately want a child. And then you have the very next prayer, and you have somebody pray, God, I don't know how I'm gonna make it through with my child, parenting my child. And then you have the person on the other side, God, I, I dream of being able to raise my own and teach them all about life and faith. And then you have the person over here, God, I, I feel as though I've failed in raising my children. They're little terrors. I don't know what to do with them next. My hair's falling out. It's turning gray. As I'm going over this this morning, my kids are fighting upstairs about who gets to use the bathroom first, right? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Verse 4. On the day when Alcanna sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, all her sons and daughters, Verse 5, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Who closed her womb? It's pretty clear in the verse, isn't it? A double portion to Hannah, because he loved her. Remember Hannah's name? It meant, what did it mean? Favored. Favored favorite, even though the Lord has closed her womb. And, and Doug says, ultimately, God decides who has children or who cannot. It's a mystery that can be grievous, he writes. And I was, I was thinking about this. You know, it's certainly a, a mystery. Families are a big deal in this culture. Big deal. Family is a big deal throughout the Bible. Society is eroding the values and framework of the family, Even considering children, God tells specific people in the Old Testament to go forth and multiply. It's a command to them. He tells us that children are a heritage, a blessing from the Lord. He says, like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Kids were viewed as an incredible blessing from God, an inheritance, something to be desired, something of value, something of longing. Even the way this verse is worded, it kind of pulls at your heart, doesn't it? Alcana loved Hannah, though, even though, she couldn't have kids. What does that imply? Does it imply that her worth was found in, in having children? Is that where she found her identity? I don't think love, worth, and value should be linked to a woman's ability or inability to have kids. Her identity, worth, and value needs to be in Jesus Christ just like it does for all of us. But this issue of infertility is a deep, difficult one for many, and and I've got to be honest, it's tough to talk about. I feel like I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth. I feel like I already have. The verse says, the Lord has closed her womb. And knowing the story, we might be quick to think, yeah, well, well God closed her womb so that after she prayed in faith, he could open her womb, and then it could be this miraculous story, which it is, but is, that's not everyone's story. What about all those stories that don't end that way? What about all those married couples who long to have kids? What about those men and women who desire children but haven't found the spouse that God would have for them yet? Or what, what about the couple who miscarried? What about the couple who has a child but for some reason they couldn't have any more? There's so many stories, so many nuances. Why would God allow that? I've even heard the question, why did Mrs. Hitler have a baby and call him Adolf? But yet other women can't. Why would God allow that? Doug's right. It's a mystery. It's complexity. And, And somewhere in all this questioning, there needs to come a point where we release our grip on needing to know the answers and trust when he says his ways are higher, his thoughts are above our thoughts reading this this morning, my mind went right to Job. Do you remember the opening scene in Job, Job chapter one? Satan somehow questions Job's character before God. And we have so many questions about how that looks and how Satan just roams around the earth and, and gives this report to God. Job's family is gathered. It's a party. All the sons and the daughters, they're feasting together I just get this Norman Rockwell vibe. The whole family's there. They're carving into the turkey. I don't know what they ate. Maybe it's a holiday. But you know what the best part is for all the introverts out there? It wasn't at Job's house. He's just getting the Snapchat updates from his grandkids on what's going on and the family gathered there. Then one of the servants comes to Job. Your oxen and your donkeys were stolen. Before he even gets the words out, another sheep caught on fire. I don't know how that happens, but they did. Another servant shows up. The Chaldeans stole the camels. Another servant, before he's even done speaking, the wind blew so hard, your oldest son's house toppled down and all your children are gone. Back to back to back. This is what Job hears. Just sit in that for a second. I heard a story Family were playing on the beach down in the States on vacation. The kids are digging a deep hole in the sand. The sand collapsed and the sun didn't make it. Just let that sit for a second. Doesn't that just wrench your heart? The family's all gathered. It's all good. And then just this haunting moment that they'll battle for the rest of their lives. Like Job. I'm not even going to begin to speculate what's worth Having kids and losing them or not having kids at all. But the reality is that life is filled with pain and struggle, isn't it? Heart-wrenching hurt. And it's the result of sin. That same sin that took Jesus to the cross. That's why the Lord's table. That's why the gospel message that we preach, that's why his once-for-all sacrifice is so important. That's why we're gathered here today. You know what Job does after he hears all this news back to back to back? Everything he has in this life is gone in a moment, including all of his children. Job chapter 1. I just want to read three verses for you. Verse 20. Then, at that point, Job arose He tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. is that crazy? The faith, the confidence this guy has in his God. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Back to our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 6. I just want you to get a feel for what maybe Hannah is experiencing. Verse 6, and her rival... That's the what do we call her? The co-wife, wife number one, two, Penina. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Can you imagine joking with someone, making fun of someone because they can't conceive? Doug writes this. Penina was a real jewel. I think that's really good. That's the definition of her name, right? Jewel. She's she's a real gem. She's a real character. She didn't support Hannah, but became her rival, as if she was saying, see, God loves me more than you. She was jealous because Elkanah loved Hannah more. It's this real mess. Just a complete mess. Penina used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her. The word is the Hebrew term kos. For provoke, it's used twice to say provoking her with provocation. Just a tease. Just irritation. The word for irritate is ram or thunder, meaning violently agitate. Penina made it her mission to make Hannah miserable. What a terrible thing. Doug says a word about polygamy or open marriages. He says they might look like a good idea, but they don't work because people are prone to jealousy. God's design of one man and one woman works best. And he writes this, one is enough. (laughs) Exclamation point. I couldn't agree more, Doug. (laughs) Polygamy in the Old Testament. Let's take this a step further. Abraham, polygamous relationships. Jacob, same thing. David, Solomon, All Solomon's foreign wives with their foreign gods stole his heart away from the one true God. Didn't work out. These stories are showcased not to endorse polygamy. If King David did it, then I can do it. But it's to show the destruction and the dysfunction of a polygamous lifestyle. It never works out in Scripture. Never works. This family will showcase the same problem. I read a good article from Desiring God. If you want to read that, I meant to throw it out there somehow. I've got the link here if you want to see it. You probably can't see that on the screen to click on it. No, probably not. Uh, But if you want that, we'll talk about that later. Look at verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 1. So it went on year by year. This wasn't just a short-term thing. This is long and drawn out. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not even eat. Elkanah, her husband, listen to what he says. Oh, man. Guys, pay attention, please. He says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? The Hebrew term there is broken. Your heart is broken. And then he says this with his hands on his hips like this, I'm sure he did. He said, uh, Am I not more to you than ten sons? What a jerk. Elkanah, you charmer, you. But isn't it a very natural thing for a husband to think that he can fulfill his wife's desires? For a wife to think that she can fulfill her husband's desires? Don't you hear couples talking about that as, as they're dating? Or Jesus is the only one who can fulfill your desires. Husband, you ain't going to cut it. Wife, girl who's looking for the boyfriend out there, he ain't going to cut it. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill the desires of your heart. Broken in pieces was Hannah's heart. went on for years. Can you relate to having a broken heart? Many of us can. Broken heart. What are you desperate for? What drives you to your knees in prayer? What are you broken over? Is it the sin in the world? Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, as they did year after year, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Deeply distressed is the Hebrew term mar. It means bitter of soul, stressed to the max. How's that for a picture? Uh, Wept bitterly is the Hebrew term baka. It means wept sore, to weep in grief and humiliation. This is like... like a cathartic release. She's just letting everything out. The emotion is pouring out. How how do you actually release? How do you actually let go of something that's got your heart broken and give it to God? How does that happen? She's just she's just letting it all out. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, don't forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give unto the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This is the Nazarite vow, which you see elsewhere in the Old Testament. You ever make a promise with God? It's more of an Old Testament covenant approach, promises between God and man. But God requires that if we make a vow, we pay it. We do it. Doug's got a couple references I want to point out. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Don't make a promise you can't keep. Then Matthew chapter 5 verses 33 to 37. These are Jesus' words. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Then Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. It's not your choice. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And we have to really dig into that to get the nuances of everything that Jesus is saying. But the main point is being, you make a promise and you don't keep it, you shouldn't have made a promise in the first place. Hannah makes this promise with God and she vows to keep it. I've heard so many testimonies like this. You know, I got to a desperate point in my life and I said to God, look, if you just get me out of this one spot, the rest of my life is for you. I've heard testimonies like that and you probably have heard that too. First Samuel chapter one, look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord in the temple, Eli is sitting, observing. Eli observed her mouth. Do you ever think about people watching you while you pray? Anybody work a secular job and sit in the break room for lunch and it's like, oh yeah, I gotta pray. I remember being a teenager doing that. And I remember a couple times I thought, you know, if I, just, if I just yawn the right way, thank you God for my lunch, nobody will... You ever think that way? Hannah is praying desperately, pleading with God, just like pouring her heart out and Eli is sitting there watching. I don't know if she didn't know or if she didn't care, Eli observed her mouth. Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. (laughs) You ever stick your foot in your mouth like that? Judge a book by its cover? Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman in troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. I wonder if that's how Hannah felt. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. We need to be careful how we judge people, especially when they're distressed. We often don't know the motives. If somebody lashes out at you, it's probably because they're hurting inside. Hannah said, I'm a woman in troubled in spirit. The Hebrew term is Q-A-S-E. What's that? Case? Case? Quase? It means a hard, severe, sorrowful spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's the Hebrew term shafak, meaning gush out one's pain. Just to gush out. Out of my great anxiety, that's the Hebrew term *sia*, meaning complaint, and vexation, kos, meaning provocation, unmerited treatment, all of those layers of pain and torment that Penina put on her, she's just releasing it. She's just complaining it before the Lord. Doug makes this comment, I don't know if you could find a more distressed person in the whole Bible. Yeah, this woman is in pain. She's releasing it. She's pouring it out before the Lord. Look at verse 17. Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. Her face was no longer sad. Doug says, do you see this? One leader's encouragement in the Lord helped change Hannah and give her confidence in God's grace. I don't know if Eli was giving her a prophetic word, but he added his amen to her prayer, and it helped. I want you to see how she walked away, how she felt. She went back to eating something that she wasn't doing prior because her heart was so broken, and her face was no longer sad. Let me ask you this. Did she have the child at that point? Did Was she pregnant at that point? Did she she know God had answered her prayer? Something in her confidence and her faith in God shifted when she poured out her spirit before the Lord in prayer, before she ever received the answer to her prayer. And it changed her perspective and her outlook and her emotion and the sadness on her face and and how she was staying away from food because of her broken heart. Something in the release of that prayer as she poured out everything, her emotions, emotionally, mentally, physically, just left it all there spiritually. She got up with a different face before she ever saw the result of that prayer. I love that. Confidence in God before the answer comes. Look at verse 19. We'll finish out this passage. They rose early in the morning. They worshiped before the Lord. I wonder what that worship experience was like for Hannah. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, in the biblical sense, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel, the Hebrew name Shemuel, means heard of God. God has heard me. God listened. This is interesting. Doug points this out. The word ask, Hannah asked of the Lord. She's she's recounting what happened, and she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, Doug, I had to dig into this. I didn't know what, what this Hebrew vocabulary terminology meant, so I had to study this out. Um, meaning to ask or inquire or request, the Hebrew word tense, when Hannah refers to herself, I asked, is cal, perfect, third person, masculine, singular. Do you know what that means? I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. I had to look that up. It signifies an undramatic, I asked. It's, it's like Hannah is choosing to overlook all of the pain and vexation she experienced in the asking, and she's looking at it from a third-party perspective. Now, I've never referred to myself in the third person, as far as I know, unless I'm telling a story or something. So I guess I have. But that third-person perspective, it's like like you're removing yourself from the situation and you're just standing over it, getting a higher view, a a more objective approach. Isn't that what prayer does? Doesn't it give us this, this higher perspective? We're not buried under the the desperation of our circumstances caving in on us, trying to claw our way out. Instead, we're looking at it from God's perspective, kind of in the third person. That we get to see ourselves and our situation from this higher perspective of faith because God is over and in and through and sustaining under all of our situation. We get a God perspective on what's going on. And that's kind of how Hannah responds in the vocabulary of the Hebrew. Doug, I never would have saw that unless you wrote that out. Uh, Her perspective is different. It's higher. It's shifted. Doug writes, when confidence in God returns, we tend to forget the harsh bitterness that we felt. It's like that peace that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts, guards our minds in Christ Jesus. I love that. So Doug's got three points to finish off here, and I want to give them to you. Doug, I don't know how long you were planning on being, but... uh, Yeah, here we go. Let's finish it off. Take, wait, and relate. Number one, take it to the Lord. Man, you've got something breaking your heart, some sort of tension in your life, this this broken, fragmented pain and suffering and wrenching for the sin that's in this world. Take it to the Lord. Don't complain about it with friends. Don't write the post on Facebook. Take it to the Lord. Go to the Lord. First, foremost... Whatever's troubling you, as long and as often as you're burdened. Um, Doug talked about Psalm chapter 27 and verse 5 that we read. There may be times when the Lord says, you know, it's enough. You need to stop praying for this. Like Paul, when he was praying for the thorn in the flesh three times, and then God said, my grace is sufficient for you in your hurt, in your pain. Jesus' parable of the persistent widow, Luke chapter 18. Give me justice. She keeps going back to the judge, and because of her consistency and persistency the judge grants her request jesus is saying take it to the lord in prayer consistently time and time again once you take it to the lord so often we give it to god we say god i want you to do something with it oh you're not doing anything with it so i'm going to take it back now i tried that yeah i tried praying about it take and then wait wait for the lord Wait for the answer in his time. To wait on the Lord is to worship, to surrender. Maybe sometimes when we're in worship with the music, we might open our hands like this. We might open our hands like this. It's a picture of surrender. I'm I'm letting go. I surrender, right? Leave it with God. Wait on God. It's written 130 or 154 times in Scripture, depending on the version. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40 and verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord, they will what? They will renew their strength, mount up with wings as eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not grow faint. I can see people mouthing that along as I'm I'm saying it. Isaiah 40, 31. Wait on the Lord. Take it to God. Leave it with God. Wait for God And then number three, relate. Relate to others in your burden, in your waiting, in your prayer. Observe other people's troubles, share in their troubles. Encourage others that the Lord sees them, the Lord hears them, the Lord remembers them. Do you have people to relate your prayers with or do you just pray alone and keep it to yourself? Doug says, how many times have I heard pastors say, they didn't come to me for help until it, until it was too late. We try and do things on our own, don't we? Until we're stuck in that desperate situation, we're forced to our knees in prayer. We're forced to reach out in community and accountability and relationships, sharing the journey in prayer. It's so key. And then Doug wanted to close by talking about the Faith Baptist Church prayer movement. Uh, that he's been an integral part in. If you want to know more about the prayer movement, you should chat with Doug, ask him how his symptoms are while you're talking to him. Uh, But he wrote down, the prayer movement is a way that we can seek the Lord more and pray for others so that God will move. And then he gives this practical point, and I love this. If you struggle with being focused and consistent in prayer, he says, use a list we have lists of seniors in our church. Uh, we have lists of ministries and leaders you can pray for. We have lists of church families. We have a church directory with pictures in it that you can pray through. By the way, we're updating our church directory this fall, so keep an eye out for that. Um, pray for your community. Pray for other churches. We, we are part of the fellowship. We're part of 19 other churches across Atlantic Canada, who are seeking to do the same thing, getting the message of the gospel uh, into hearts and lives in our communities. Pray for our country. There's so many ways that we can be practical in prayer. But I I love those three points. Take, wait, and relate. Let's close in a word of prayer today. God, I want to thank you so much that we can come to you, that we can come boldly before your throne, that we can enter the Holy of Holies with confidence, as Curtis pointed out, because of the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, that once-for-all sacrifice, God, help us to come to you. Help us not to wait until we're at the end of our rope or desperate or stuck. Help us to bring it all to you, God. Let's take it to the Lord in prayer. And then once we've taken it to you, help us to leave it there. Give us the patience that in the waiting, in the twisting, in the contorting of our heart, as the pressure builds, as we wait for the answer, help us to have patience and confident faith that your hands are the best place for whatever our heart is breaking over. God, help us to relate to others in their brokenness, in their dysfunction, in their struggle. God, the only reason that we're gathered here as a church is because we've faced our brokenness. We've, we've realized the sin and the impurity in our own life, all the skeletons in our closet, and we've turned those over to you in faith and had your shed blood and your forgiveness for all the sin in our life. We've received that. God, help us to be sensitive, gracious, and merciful to others in their brokenness, in their hurting. God, I think of families today, whatever the dynamic is, whatever the struggle is. If it's infertility, if it's issues with children like we talked about today, if it's if it's a difficult relational dynamic like this crazy marriage that we talked about with Alcana and Hannah and Penina, God, would you just work in that, Father? God, I pray that The truth of the gospel would be for us today in our relationships and how we deal with one another, pray for one another, care for one another, serve one another. God, would we be your hands and feet today and carry that message of the cross to the world and live it out for one another. God, we thank you for prayer today. Thank you that we can come to you, that we can converse with you. In Jesus' name, amen.